the way that you get the best client relationships and get the highest value work and really become advisors to your clients is to make sure that you're doing more than just bringing them good people. If you can add value to your clients that's not just here's a person, they stay with you forever. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm excited to be joined today by Jonathan Field. Jonathan is Joint Group CEO of SSQ, a leading international legal recruitment business headquartered in London with offices in Paris, Munich, Frankfurt, Madrid, Dubai, Hong Kong, Beijing, and Shanghai. They launched in 2003, and SSQ has around 100 employees, was recently ranked as the UK's number one professional services recruiter by Recruiter Magazine. Jonathan trained and qualified as a lawyer in 2006 before leaving his law firm to join SSQ in 2007. For several years, he was responsible for running the London business. And then in 2019, he was appointed as joint group CEO following a management buyout. So now he divides his time between running the business and advising the world's top law firms on their most senior and strategic lateral hiring. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Mark, thank you for having me. We got there in the end. All right. Yes, (laughs) this is like the third time we've tried to organize this. So (laughs) I'm I'm glad we're finally, we're doing it, man. Exactly. uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So just to give us a bit of context in terms of your career, would you please tell the story of how you transitioned from being a lawyer to being a recruiter? Sure. Um, so I I grew up in London and have lived in the UK my whole life. Did school and, and uni. And then I left uni and I guess like most people had no idea what I wanted to do. And, and my parents had obviously always wanted me to be a lawyer. So I thought, okay, in the absence of uh, wanting to do anything else, I'll go and train and qualify to be a lawyer. And so I wrote like a thousand applications off to various law firms. And I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I ended up um, getting a training contract, which is kind of how you get into law school and how you end up being a lawyer with one of the top law firms in the country. Um, and, and just because I got a job, one of these big law firms, that's the route I took. Looking back now, I'm not really sure how that happened. I think that this was like right at the very beginning of law firms starting to think about diversity. And although that sounds weird now to think that I'd be a diverse candidate, at the time, these top law firms only took people from Oxford and Cambridge. So I think I just sent my application at that right moment when they were thinking, okay, we probably need to have a couple of people who aren't from Oxford and Cambridge. So just by total luck, I ended up getting a job at Allen and Overy, which is one of the top law firms. So I went off to law school, did that. Um, and then you do a two-year training contract when you join a law firm. Uh, so joined Allen and Overy in 2004 and quickly realized that I was going to be an absolutely terrible lawyer. I mean, it was an amazing amazing place, amazing people, like an amazing business. And it was very daunting. I remember turning up on the first day and they take like, I think it's like 60 people in each intake. Twice a year, they take 60 grads. And like each of these guys and girls that I was with were from Oxford and Cambridge, the brightest people in the world. Um, and so after a couple of weeks, I quickly realized that this was not going to be for me. But I, I persisted and it was an amazing experience. And I spent two years working on, you kind of rotate into different departments. You spend some time in banking and litigation and real estate. Um, 
And it was an amazing experience working on some of the largest pieces of M&A in the world or big ticket litigation or massive bits of real estate. But as I said, I, I quickly realized that law wasn't for me. And it's an interesting thing, actually. I think it's changed now because grads want totally different things now. But when I was growing up, if you wanted to secure a job, like the natural path was go and be a lawyer, go and be a banker, go and be an accountant. And I think actually people of my generation, a lot of people went into those professions and quickly realized they weren't suited to those skill sets. Um, the one thing that I did uh, like and enjoy and was good at was um, building client relationships. So a lot of the people I was with were excellent at the law, but they weren't necessarily the best at building client relationships. And so what happens is after two years at a law firm, you then get to qualify. If you're good enough, you get to qualify into one of those uh, areas. And actually I did qualify. They kept me on. I, was in a, I joined their banking team. And I remember like that <clears throat> there's forms that you fill out as to why you have to kind of be accepted. And my form effectively said, just good at building relationships with clients and, and really was side on and everything else. So I joined and it was brutal. I mean, these law firms are amazing businesses, but they, and still to this day, they make money by charging out people's time. And so effectively, the more hours you work, the more money the law firm makes. And so I was like 25, 26. And for the first six months of my career, I was working to 1 a.m., 2 a.m. every night. Um, and so as well as not being very good at the job, I was also totally killing myself. Um, so an interesting experience, but I quickly realized that I needed to do something else. But that did leave me the question, like, what on earth should I do? Like, I'm a lawyer. I'm at the biggest law firm in the country. Even though I hate it, it's super impressive when you tell people. My mum's the proudest mum she could be. She's telling, <laughs> she's telling her friends at dinner parties, my son's a lawyer. So what do you do at that point? Um, and just by total chance, I met someone who ran their own recruitment business. And I spent some time with him. And he just out of the blue said to me, why don't you leave? I was telling him how unhappy I was. So why don't you leave and come and set up my legal arm? and it was the first time I'd ever really thought about recruitment so I spent some time with him and he showed me the business and showed me what he did and the more he said the more I realized like this really could be for me but it seemed just such a massive jump having not done a day's recruitment work to go and set up a whole new division so he gave me the seed of the idea and so at that point and I was about six months into my post-qualification career and oh I started to go and speak to the various legal recruitment businesses um and I was a bit snobby, right? Like, even though I knew being a lawyer wasn't for me, I was enjoying the fact that I was at this big, prestigious organization. And I was a little bit nervous about the fact that I was going to go into recruitment. So I went to go and meet all the re legal recruitment businesses I could. And SSQ just stood out by a mile because the people who had set it up and had run it all had the same background as me. They'd all trained at big law firms. They'd all decided that they weren't going to enjoy being lawyers forever. And they'd set up this recruitment business that was super professional, very high quality. And so, yeah, so I joined in 2007. So there was like some trauma. Like I had to go and tell my mom I wasn't going to be a lawyer anymore. I had to tell my friends I was giving up a job with the biggest law firm in the world. Everyone told me I was ridiculous. I thought I was probably going to be ridiculous. Um, but I got through all of that, started in 2007. And I'd say within about a month of being there, I knew I'd found what I was going to do. I absolutely loved it. I just fell in love with the recruitment from the minute I walked through the door. Um, so I knew very quickly I'd made the right decision.
and so yeah, so that was the um, that was the transition. Amazing, mm. and that took a lot of courage to go sort of against the prestige and and obviously the friends and family element is you know that's hard when you're um yeah you're you're really going against the grain yeah 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 yeah. no it was expectation right yeah i mean in hindsight like really like a first world problem like not like a massive existential crisis i was going from one very well paid prestigious job in the city just to a slightly less prestigious slightly slightly worse paid job in the city so kind of first world problems but at the time for me it felt like a big problem um i also i was newly married i had a kid on the way so that also felt like quite a big thing um, but I also knew that if there was ever a time to make that sort of jump, it was then. I think the longer you go on, the harder it becomes. And actually, we've recruited our business model for a long time was recruiting lawyers that don't enjoy being in the law anymore. And so we've got a few people in our business now who are some of our most successful consultants who just took a bit longer than me to come to the realization they'd been in the law two years, three years, four years. And the process of those guys leaving law firms, infinitely harder. There's way more stuff to unpack. It's a much bigger deal. You're earning much more money. Now, they've ended up making the transition. It's worked amazingly for them. If they were sitting here now, they'd tell you the same story. But it, it, it does get harder the, the older you get. So actually, in hindsight, I'm quite pleased I did it when I did. And yeah, I guess for anyone listening, if you're sat in a job, wherever you are, professional services, or even in recruitment, and if you're not, and this is so cliched, right? You read any management book or listen to any management talk, it's like the same thing, but it really is true. If you don't get up every day and enjoy what you're doing, change, because the difference it makes is enormous. I remember by the end of my time at an ovary, I get up every morning just dreading going into work. And, and the difference, fast forward a year, where I get up every morning just like totally enthused, it just changes everything. So, I mean, that, there definitely is a, a message in there for everyone listening. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, change it very quickly. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Tell me, you said you fell in love with recruiting. You knew within a month it was for you. What was it that really just connected for you there? Um, good question. So I, some of it was just the contrast to what I'd been doing. So if you can imagine, when you work at a large law firm, the bureaucracy, the hierarchy are enormous. I mean, they, these are amazing businesses, but they're structured in a certain way. So if you are a young, slightly arrogant, ambitious person in a law firm, you have to bide your time. You have to get your head down. You have to work hard. You have to sit in the background and just earn your stripes. Um, Nothing wrong with that. But you compare that to any recruitment business, not just our recruitment business. Recruitment businesses in general are unbelievably meritocratic. So if you join a recruitment business and you're successful, you will fly very, very quickly because it's so results driven. And it's a totally even playing field. Like everyone has got the opportunity to go out there and bill and the results speak for themselves. And because it's, I guess, recruitment still is quite a young person's profession. And I I mean, there's definitely less technical sophistication than being in a law firm or a management consultancy or a private equity house that gives you the opportunity to lead client relationships way more quickly. So the first point was just 
being set free, like huge amounts of autonomy and independence to go and build relationships from day one where someone wasn't looking over your shoulder. You didn't have a senior partner looking at every bit of work you do. That was liberating for me because it's just, I loved doing that. The second, the second bit was just a input in results out dynamic. It's like, I knew the harder I worked, the better the results that would be, the more the rewards. When you're in a professional services environment, you can work as hard as you like for years and years and years the rewards, both economic and non-economic, are largely static. If you're X qualified, you're X paid. So the input-output metric for me was, I, again, I just, I loved that. Um, and then the third, I was just doing something that I was clearly good at, like going out, building relationships, sales, being in a sales environment, being focused on targets. I just, I loved that. And so those three things, just the meritocratic nature, like, being able to go and build and lead client relationships. And also very early on, and again, people listening to this, if they're in recruitment, they will know, you get the opportunity to get into management far more quickly as well. So within a very short period of time, I was managing people, managing teams. So, you know, by 30, which was only three years after I've left the law, I was responsible for managing the accounts with some of the largest law firms in the world. They were coming to me for all of their recruitment strategies. I was managing a team of people. Um, so it couldn't have been more different. And all of those things I absolutely loved. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Jonathan. That's a terrific story. You know, why do you think um, you progressed so quickly? Um, that's a good question. There's a couple of answers to that. So some of it is just timing. I guess anyone who ha has success would be lying if there wasn't an element of luck in being in the right place at the right time. So I joined our business in 2007. It was still like very much in the early stages of the business. And I joined legal recruitment at a point where there was an explosion of growth of international law firms in London. And so in the period that I've been doing this, take 2007 through till today, the, the growth particularly of US law firms. Over the period that I've been doing this, the number of US law firms that have launched in London and then, and then have grown from being 20 lawyer businesses to 500 lawyer businesses has been huge. And so in that 15, slightly under 15 year period, two things have happened. Number one, there's been an explosion in the growth of UK law firms. I mean, they've just you know, grown significantly. And there's been all of this inbound um, growth of US law firms. Some of these firms, I think law actually is a little bit of a misunderstood sector. You know, our biggest clients are some of the biggest businesses, certainly in professional services in the world. You know, our top client last year generated 5 billion in top line. They have, you know, thousands and thousands of lawyers. Um, and so in the period that I've been doing this, a lot of, you know, there, there are 50 American law firms that have made it their business to come to London, set up offices, and then organically grow. And so it's been an amazing time to be a legal recruiter because you've got these enormously successful businesses that are hugely profitable, have amazing balance, each, balance sheet strength. London becomes a huge strategic priority. They're coming to London during that period saying, okay, we need to partner with someone that A, is going to help us set up this office, recruit partners, recruit associates. And so some of it was just riding that wave. And so part of it was timing. You know, if I, there's always opportunities. And I think, you know, there's another huge opportunity in legal 
today. But the opportunity that, that I had when I joined um, was a very particular one. So some of it was just timing and luck. The second, I guess, it was also fortunate timing and that um, I joined a business when it was relatively small. And I think whenever you join a business with, which is relatively small, the opportunities you get are a little, just a little bit greater, right? You're accelerated slightly more quickly into positions that once that business is more mature, it's just harder to do. You know, as you say, we're just under 100 people today. When I joined the business, there were maybe like 25 people. And so some of the opportunities I had, I was pushed into very quickly because there was no one else around to do it. So some of it was just timing and, and being given the opportunity. And then the third, I think, is just, it's the same as true of anyone who's ever had any success. It's just, and some of this was because of my law firm training. I just worked really, really hard. So when I was at A&O, you know, I get into the office at 8.30, 9 o'clock. And if I left at midnight, it was a win. So then I came into, recru- <laughs> right, so then I came into recruitment. And if I was there till 8.30, it was like half day for me, right? It was like, it was amazing. And working in recruitment in particular, if you're getting in at 8.30 and you're working till 8.30 and you're consistent, um, you're going to get results. So I think you know some of it was about what was going on in the market more generally. Um, some of it was just joining my business at the right time and being pushed very quickly into opportunities that I think you know, now be more difficult. Like I, rem- I remember after a year, the way law works is that you can recruit different types of lawyers. But when you join, you'll recruit kind of newly qualified lawyers. That's your bread and butter. And then as you go up the food, the kind of the food chain, eventually what you start doing is moving partners. And that's what our business is famous for. We are responsible for moving, you know, somewhere in the region of about 100 partners between various law firms each year. Amazing business because it's both extremely high value and high volume, which is unusual. And we, mm. we can talk about that a little bit if you want. But, so, you know, today when people join our business, they start, they're doing newly qualified lawyers, you work your way up the future. And I remember when I joined, after about a year, a year and a half, the owner of my business was just like pushing me into doing partner stuff. So as someone with, without, you know, very, very little experience, I was already pushed into doing the highest value stuff that we do. Um, and so that gave me the opportunity to kind of run hard at fee earning stuff in particular that accelerated my... Um, my progression in the business. So some of it was some of it was hard work, but some of it was just timing yeah. and luck. Got it. And hey, listen, Jonathan, I uh, I really appreciate your balanced perspective on this. And it's funny because sometimes you interview people and you ask them why they're successful, and of course they take all the credit and sort of <laughs> you know talk about and it's mainly about hard work and yeah. dedication and and so on. And you know that was a very realistic. Um, you know, balanced perspective on the the success factors, which um, maybe which we should awesome. maybe we should just recut that bit. You should ask me again, and I should just say <laughs> no, because I'm just totally brilliant. Maybe I've just underscored myself there. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So, listen, um, I'd love to talk about the transition to group CEO because for growing recruiting firms. Mm. There comes a point where the owner or the leader, um, the emphasis changes from billing to developing their team and more strategic things. In fact, I once had a client who had grown his team and he built a successful staffing business to the point where he was so busy 
that he had to step back from his own desk and concentrate on replacing his billings by developing and nurturing the team. And he was a bit like, Mark, I don't know what my job is now. Like, <laughs> what does a CEO even do? Yeah. What should I be focusing on? So what, now you've been in this job for, for a little bit now. So you know, what was that transition like for you? And then what is your perspective on the job of a CEO and what it involves? Mm. Okay. So it was de- so transitioning was definitely challenging, highly challenging for a number of reasons. The first is our business has always um, prided itself on not having layers of management that all they do is manage. So when we're recruiting people, the most consistent complaint we have from people leaving other recruitment businesses is there's all these people who all they do is manage and I'm out there billing and they're not doing anything. It's like the number one frustration for people. And so we've always made it our business to ensure that there is there is as little of that in the business as possible. And so even today, um, with the exception of our support staff, everyone who's in management is still frontline fee earning. And we feel that's important. Like for you to be credible with people that you're managing, credible with clients, you still have to fee earn. So when I stepped into the role, it was never my intention to step away from fee earning altogether because A, that's the value that I've been bringing to the business and B, it's just important when I'm out recruiting people or helping other people, um, that's just always been the model. But it, it, I went from doing that 100% of the time to say 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. I was also lucky. So the way our business is structured is that we have a management board. And so on that board, I'm group chief executive with another guy and who's one of the founders of the business, Gareth Quarry, who is super experienced, super successful. Um, he built and ran a couple of recruitment businesses and not- noticeably the, the, one of the leading legal recruitment businesses in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s that he sold. Um, and so in 2019, when our previous chief executive left, Part of the restructuring involved me stepping up to being joint group chief executive with Gareth. So I'm also very fortunate that I have someone alongside me who is very, very experienced um, and has a very different perspective to me and can share the burden because our business is, as you said, is very global. So we're managing multiple jurisdictions, which puts its pressure on a management team because just take the time difference, right? When you're having to be on the phone to people, the different kind of regulatory regimes, the finances, trying to manage all of that when you're a multi-jurisdictional business is a challenge. And so being able to share the burden of the executive function is really useful. And, you know, particularly so when you run into crises. So, you know, when COVID hit, and I'm sure you probably spent forever talking about COVID with all of your guests, so I don't propose to go over that, but I remember thinking at the time, I was very fortunate in that I was part of a team reacting to COVID. And that team included people like Gareth, my co-CEO, and our COO, Joe Whitehouse, who's very experienced, and the UK CEO, Adam Brown, and our finance director, James Charlton, all of whom are actually more experienced than I. And we came together as a team to manage that. And I think in a crisis, when you've got four or five people who all bring different types of experiences and perspectives to the table, A, the emotional 
stress that you're under in trying to make a decision is halved or not halved it's literally divided up into five and b you know that by putting all your minds together you're probably going to come up with better decisions so i've been lucky that again i've had the support of people around me um but it is a transition and you have to you kind of you get in every day and it's not just like who which clients you're going to go and talk to but you have to start focusing on all the things that are wider for the business how do you grow this part of the business how do we recruit and retain people how do you find the people who maybe aren't doing so well and kind of spend time with them and make sure they're getting up the food chain all of the things that people who run recruitment businesses will know and you spend more time on you know the economics and the financials that sort of stuff so um, it's a learning curve and the when you spent 10 plus years spending all day every day just dealing with clients and candidates and people in your team your instincts are always to kind of go back there so you have to be quite disciplined in taking time to making sure that you're doing all the things um that are involved in being a ceo so it, it, it was a challenge i think over time i've got better at it but it does continue to be a challenge as well and i think everyone who's in recruitment who then ends up in management whether you're a ceo or you're just running a team that is the conundrum people kind of face and it's a, it's a problem people struggle with every day. So, um, yeah. So, um, how have you found that balancing act then between fearing and, you know, leading, uh, in terms of, you know, cause each one of those could be a full-time job. Um, so <clears throat> the fearing stuff so, I mean, ultimately, the answer there is just about being disciplined. You have to just carve out time in your week to make sure that you're focused on doing things that are either fee earning or a management. And those things can break down into a whole separate different categories. So, a large part of it is just being organized. When you've got more things to manage, you just have to be a bit more disciplined and a bit more organized and be strict with your time. I mean, again, if you like listen to management staff, and I'm sure lots of people do, being organized and being strict with your time is a recurring theme. And that really is true. You have to be disciplined in saying, okay, today's about this. And no matter what comes up, today is really about this. Uh, and then also you have to try and put structures in place that are going to help you. Certainly this happened to me, but I don't think I'm alone in this. When you go from being a Fianna to being a CEO, the temptation is to think you have to do everything. It's like, right, I'm a CEO now, right? I have to do everything. I have to be on top of finances. I have to be on top of the legals. I have to be on top of infrastructure. I have to be on top of marketing. Like, but my job is not to be the marketing person. And I am I, not the FD and I'm not our HR director. We have people doing all of that, right? But when you're new into a job, you kind of feel, right, like, my job is to do everything now. And it really isn't. So you have to go through that learning curve of understanding that a CEO is not there to do every single person's job. Your job is just to make sure that everyone is pointing the direction you want them pointed in at, pointed at. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, as you speak to people, and you know, when you become a CEO, it's really good to go and speak to other people who've done it successfully. And again, I'm fortunate I'm working alongside someone who's done this very successfully. They will tell you, look, the best thing to do is make sure that everything you care about is delegated to someone you trust. And if you can achieve that, and it's not easy because everyone falls back into the temptation. Everyone's a control freak, right? Everyone says like, you know, delegate. Everyone's a control freak. Um, but the more you can be disciplined and say, okay, this is the direction we want to go. You go off and do it, the better your life will be. So... Um, you know, it's it's not perfect, but that's kind of the approach we take. 
Amazing. Yeah, no, good good advice. <laughs> what else have you learned in that in making that transition looking back like what mistakes have you made or what things have you had to kind of develop in order to be effective? <laughs> what mistakes have I made? I mean, thousands. You should invite the people in my business onto your podcast and do a whole session <laughs> on what mistakes have I made as CEO. You'll have a queue of people waiting for that. Um, what mistakes have I made? Look, I think it, what I just said, it's like um, thinking that it's your job to do everything mm-hmm. and also you know, not being able to let go you know, trying to be over everything that, 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 that was probably a mistake. I think there's also, um, there's a kind of psychological or an emotional pressure that comes with being a CEO that again, I, I don't think is unique to our business or to me. You speak to anyone and the, and the burden of kind of waking up every day and thinking, right, the fate of this whole business to a large extent relies on what you're doing is a different pressure. If you're going in every day and you're fee earning and you're doing a great job, but you don't have to worry about cash flow and you don't have to worry about HR issues, you don't have to worry about strategic growth, it's just a different set of problems to juggle. And it's great and it's super challenging, but then it also comes with its own you know, stresses. And, and learning how to take a step back and understanding that it is just a job and you can go home and spend, spend time with your family and go away on holiday and enjoy time with your friends without incessantly worrying about the different parts of the business is a, is a really useful lesson to learn. And you can't really learn it theoretically. I, <clears throat> I think everyone has to go through that. But that is a kind of, I guess, a, a mental health challenge that people have to face. Um, uh, but it's, imp- it's important that everyone kind of detaches every now and again. And, and, and recruitment's terrible for that, by the way, because... And this isn't true of management people. Recruitment has loads of pros and cons, but anyone listening to this who's in recruitment will know that even when you're fearing, that you can't switch off ever, right? Like when you're doing deals and you're running projects for clients and you're dealing with candidates or you're in a management position, the number of holidays that have been interrupted because you're like, you're around the pool on the phone or you're out for dinner with family and you're just wandering outside a restaurant because you're on the phone to a client late at night. Um, everyone will be familiar with that in recruitment because it's 24-7. And so you, you have to just set boundaries. Could you say more on that, on setting boundaries? Because I feel like this issue has amplified over the last 12 months yeah. to the point where um, there is no clear demarcation, especially if you're working from home, there's no clear demarcation between when work finishes, you've got your commute to decompress, and then you've got your family time in the evening. And of course, you might have some calls to candidates to make or, you know, some some emails to do, but there is more of a separation. And now it's just all getting mashed together. Mm. How have you managed to set those boundaries so that you are able to keep a lid on the stress and, you know, be there for your family as well? Yeah. So it's never perfect. <clears throat> And I think you're right. The last year has made things worse. I think largely though, everyone's on the same page. Like if you talk to, when we talk to clients and you ask them about this, they're under the same pressures. And so I think a lot of it is just like a self-imposed pressure. If, if you mm. set boundaries to say, listen, I'm just not available at this time. Very few clients are going to react badly to that. In fact, the current climate is that people respect it enormously. And interestingly enough for us, the junior people in our business are brilliant at this. Like they come into the workplace from a totally different generation. And these people are programmed quite rightly, I think, to say no. Like there is an end point at which my work stops 
and everything else is more important. And so rather than that being a negative, I think that's a real positive. And so I think junior people actually are, are much hotter on this than senior people. Um, we've tried to make, certainly in the last year or two, we've tried to do as much as possible to make sure that people are setting boundaries. So we, we give people as much flexibility as they want right now. You know, they can be in the office if they want to. They don't have to be in the office if they don't need to be. We've appointed mental health first aiders. We've run a number of courses. We've made it a big priority for our business to make sure that everyone is supported to the maximum way possible they can be supported by the business and to make sure that people realize it's a big priority of ours that <clears throat> there is a point where work stops uh, and we don't expect people to be online 24-7. Um, even small things like, you know, I remember when I first joined our business, email culture was really bad. We were all ex-lawyers. If you're a lawyer, your email is 24-7. There's no hour an email can't be sent. And so for the first couple of years in our business, emails would regularly be flying around 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, right? And we've stopped that. You know, it's, you know we've made sure that unless there really needs to be you know, there's no need for emails to be flying around in the evenings. They just aren't. And and those small micro things set the tone for everything else. Now, it's not perfect and things do slip through the net from time to time. But I think if you make mental health a priority culturally within the business and you take the steps that make people realize you're serious about that. So that's running courses and appointing mental health first aiders and setting days aside and then do the small things like encouraging email traffic to stop after seven. That can make a big difference. Beautiful. I love that. That's a really good, really good insight, Jonathan. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Jonathan, let's dive into attracting, motivating, retaining talent. Like, first of all, what makes a good recruiter and what do you guys look for when you're hiring internally? Um, so I think this is the question every recruitment business spends time thinking about the most. So I think there are certain things that are absolute non-negotiables when you're looking for a good recruiter. At its heart, this is a sales job. And so the number one thing you are looking for is hunger and ambition and drive. And there's a number of ways of working out or trying to work out if someone has got that. 
but you really have to get under the skin as to what is driving this person to get to get up every day and come in and deliver because this is a sales job and you need to be consistent and robust and so something underlying everything is driving each person to get up and do that. And so when you're looking to bring in talent, that's the number one thing you have to ask yourself is like, what is going to drive this person to get in every day and work super hard to get the results and take the knockbacks and and be resilient and be consistent. Um, And so that's the number one thing without that drive, without understanding what someone's why is, it's very difficult to see how they would be consistently good as a recruiter. And that, that can come in in a variety of different ways, right? Like, people could have had a poor academics and they've got a chip on their shoulder and they want to prove to the world that they're good. Right? People, people could have spent their entire formative careers playing competitive sports and therefore they're just hardwired to be competitive. Um, people might have you know, young families to support. Like Whatever it is, it there's no uniform answer to that, but you have to very quickly understand, okay, what's going to drive this person? Um, and you know that above everything else is really important when you're looking uh, for a good salesperson. You then have to weed out all of the sharp elbowed stuff. You know, like, like nothing is worth ruining your culture for. So you have to test for: Am I going to enjoy working with this person day in day out? And this is hard because anyone who's thinking about recruitment is going to be semi good at sales. And if you're semi-good at sales, it means that at the very least, you can do a really good first interview. And lots of uh, recruitment owners will know this. The number of times you go into an interview someone and you think, oh, they've interviewed well. Well, of course they have because this is someone who's interested in sales. And so at the very least, they can put together a good interview. So you have to find ways to test for cultural stuff you don't want in your business. Um, And I think if you can find those two things, you're well on the road. Like ambition, drive, and fluency in sales, and then to weed out some of the cultural kind of um, overly aggressive behavior is really good. Um, And then it depends on our business in what you're recruiting for. So if I look at what makes a really good recruiter, so work ethic and sales ability, those two things combined are really good foundations. Um, That will make a really good recruiter the thing that distinguishes good or really good recruiters from excellent recruiters um, I mean you have to have other stuff in there and everyone will know this right you have to be disciplined and organized and all that sort of stuff so again testing for that but um, the bit that will then separate good recruiters from brilliant recruiters is their ability to be more than just recruiters so you know one of the things I'm most proud of as CEO is that we now have multiple consultants who are billing seven figures, north of seven figures each year. Um, and, and that can be life-changing for people in recruitment. And so it's amazing that our business supports having multiple people across the business that are seven-figure billers. Fantastic for them, fantastic for us. But if you look at what's consistent about those people, they have an ability to digest, organize, and synthesize information that allows them to become more than just transactional recruiters for their clients. And the way that you get the best client relationships and get the highest value work and really become advisors to your clients is to make sure that you're doing more than just bringing them good people. You're offering them analysis on the market. 
and that you're, you are a reservoir of information on your particular market and that you can talk coherently, incredibly, and with insights into what's going on because then you're adding value that isn't just about finding the person. And if you can add value to your clients that's not just here's a person, they stay with you forever and they put you into high value stuff. And so, the, you know, the, our best recruiters are the ones that at the foundation have work ethic and drive and are resilient. And, and there's a real reason why they're there every day, but they're also able to, to take the time to learn about the market, digest tons of information, and then can use that to almost become a resource for their clients. And so again, you know, the number one bit of advice I give to an aspiring recruiter is just become the expert in what you do. And the more value you can add to clients that isn't just about what can you give me. It's not just about like, can I pie you, find you someone, the better it will be. And I, I listened to, in preparation for this, I listened to a couple of your previous sessions. And there's that guy from Australia, Greg Savage, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he spoke about this and I couldn't agree more. And during COVID, it was obvious. And I remember just before, when we, when we saw lockdown was coming, and that everyone was going to have to go home. We got the whole business together and we said, look, this is going to be challenging, no doubt, but be under no illusion. The next, however long it was going to be at that time, three months, six months, 12 months, is going to be an, an unbelievably valuable time for you to build and crystallize relationships because how you treat clients and candidates in an environment where you know you're not going to be making money will dictate your relationship for the next decade. So the next six months is just all about how much information can you give to clients and candidates about what's going on in the market? And they'll never forget it. And it turned out to be absolutely true. Um, but it's even tr even more true in a market where most of your time is spent doing things that are just purely transactional. The more advisory stuff you can do for your clients, the, the better the relationships will be. Awesome. That was a very comprehensive an answer, Jonathan. So I want to just break that down a little bit. To your last point about the difference between good recruiters and exceptional recruiters being, you know, that they have ascended from being transactional and good at, you know, putting placements together to being the expert, really knowing what's going on in their market and uh, adding value, becoming, being perceived as an advisor to their clients, not just a, a recruiter. And I just wonder, is that something which you, you teach or that you support people with in terms of like, let's put together a round table, let's produce a research, you know, white paper, let's organize an event or let's like, do you, uh, uh, from a marketing perspective, help people to do that? Or is this something that people just on their own initiative, they've seen an opportunity to, um, through their own knowledge and they're just transferring that one-to-one -one in every conversation with every client and every candidate. Mm. The truth is the second is more likely is, is, is the answer. People just, mm -hmm. they, they absorb it by osmosis in our business. So one of the ways we're able to attract people is that a lot of the interactions we have with clients are exactly that. They, we, you know, they, they're in that environment where we are almost acting. I mean, I'm overstating it this, we're not, we're just headhunters, but almost acting like management consultants. So US law firm calls us up and says, we, we're thinking about launching in London. 
we will then do multiple meetings with them pre-COVID that involved flying to New York or flying to Boston or then flying to London or doing it by video conference, where for the first few sessions, you are just offering an analysis of the European legal market. Who's who? Who's doing what for which clients? What, are the, what, are this, what does this law firm do? And what are the opportunities for that law firm in London? And if so, who are the people they should be thinking about? And so those first few sessions aren't just typical job and fill recruitment conversations. This is an analysis of the European market. Where's the opportunity for them? Which clients are they looking to act for? What are the economics around that business? Who are the people they then want to try and uh, attract? What's the cost going to be? And therefore, how do you build out the office? And that is hugely interesting for people, particularly in in recruitment, which can be very transactional. It can be very job and fill. If you've got the opportunity to be doing something very strategic with some of the most sophisticated businesses in the world, you know, as I said at the top, our law firm clients and London in particular, you know, it's one of our biggest, it's one of the UK's best exports globally as legal services. And London, as with all things that relate to finance and private equity and M&A, is a capital in the world for this type of work. And so if you're able to advise some of the largest law firms in the world on their strategic plans for London and Europe, that just makes the job more interesting and more satisfying. And so when we're recruiting talent and we show them the type of strategic work that we do, it makes it much easier for us to attract people. Because it's like, right, come in and do all of the stuff you're going to love about recruitment build client relationships, go and fill jobs, build loads of money, meritocratic. But at the same time, you're going to get the opportunity to jump into really high-level strategic discussions. It's a huge kind of USP for us when attracting talent. I love it. And do you guys actually charge for that consulting or it's just something you're doing as part of your you know, client development process? Mm. I'd say for the most part, it's just part of our client development process. I mean, we get paid once we deliver and those things are hugely lucrative. And, you know, one of the amazing things about law is, you know, their only asset really is their people. So if you've got, you know, take, take the biggest law firm in the world, you know, they're generating $5 billion. That money is only a function of number of lawyers times number of hours they, they're billed. They're billing out, sorry. Um, And so when a law firm wants to grow, the only way it can grow is bringing in more people. And so when they come to us and they want to hire people, often what we're doing is more than just hiring a person. It's almost like a bit of mini corporate finance because if they hire a partner that's generating 10 or $20 million in London for certain clients, our ability to bring that person to the law firm is not just about them hiring the person, but they're actually bringing a business. And so at the top level of what we do, it it, it is recruitment, but in some respects, it's also corporate finance because these law firms will be paying out millions of dollars to bring in business that that is worth tens of millions of dollars. And so some of the conversation analysis and sophistication around doing that type of recruitment is unusual. And because law firms are structured in a certain way, there's, there's just, there's huge volume in that as well. So at the top end of what we do, not only is there really high value recruitment that's a, that has kind of elements of management consultancy and elements of corporate finance, but we can also do that at volume as well. And so we, um, we, we tend not to charge for it. Um, and we will get paid when we actually do the transactional work, but it, but it is a great way to recruit people and in an even better way to retain people. Because again, people who run recruitment business will know this, 
one of the biggest challenges you face with people is keeping them engaged and finding ways to make recruitment interesting, satisfying over a really long period of time. And if you only do one type of recruitment, it's hard for someone to do that for 15 years and not get bored. Whereas in our business, people come in, they start doing junior work, which are newly qualified lawyers. And then we have people who are with us 15 years later that have progressed on to doing the biggest partner moves in the world, multi-million pound packages and transacting in some instances, law firm mergers. And so, and again, so the fact that people can come into our business and see a career where they can see their earnings times 10 over the course of their career, but also the sophistication of their work grow, that's been a real big plus for us. And I think it's the challenge for every recruitment business for fee earners is how do you show someone a career path where the work gets more interesting and more engaging over time. Love it. That's great, great uh, insight, Jonathan. By the way, I do think you should package and your consulting services and put a price on it, even if you ultimately like give it away as a loss leader in order to, it could be a Trojan horse into some new clients and they feel like they're getting tremendous value. I mean, I'm sure after you've done it, then they go, wow, these guys really know what they're talking about. But if you can package it so they understand the value in advance and that there's almost a monetary you know, value associated with that piece of consulting work, then they might just take it even more seriously and it might be a good way of, of getting into those, uh, those accounts. Yeah, good. Interesting. Something to think about. Um, let's just finish off by talking about engagement because that is critical to getting the most out of people and retaining them. You mentioned one aspect, which is just having interesting work and variety and increasing um, sort of levels of sort of stuff that people can get involved with over and above the transactional part of recruiting. What else do you guys do to create engagement and retention? Mm. So... Some of what we do, I guess, is is typical to other recruitment businesses, which is you'll see, you you know, you, you said at the top of this call, the number of jurisdictions we have. So for each of those jurisdictions, there is a management team. Uh, and so that, you know, from a management point of view, by having a multi-jurisdictional business, there are a ton of opportunities for people to take on really quite meaty um, management roles because if you are responsible for a whole jurisdiction and a whole PL, that's like running your own little business, right? That's that's in no way really that different to being the CEO. You're just the CEO of France or the, you're the CEO of Germany or you're the CEO of China. And so, you know, that that ability for people to scale up from a management point of view is also a really good retention tool. And in London, we have four or five different business units, each of which that has their own management in place. And there is always a balance to be struck between the people who run those businesses having autonomy and also being part of a wider business. But broadly, if you can incentivize people so that they have equity within their businesses and they are bonused on the performance of their business, that's a really powerful way to retain talent in particular. And so all all of the people who run our business units, they're responsible for their PL 
um, they have bonuses attached to the financial performance of the business. And as part of the reorganization we did in 2019, we have a ton of people across the business that are shareholders at group level. And so whether it's economic levers or day-to-day management levers, um, I think if you can combine those two things, that is a really powerful way to keep people. Now, it doesn't work 100% of the time, but if someone feels that they can run a team, have PL responsibility, have equity within the local business, and have also tied in in some way financially to the performance of the group, that gives you your best chance to retain talent. Absolutely. Yeah. I love the fact that you guys have those international opportunities, which, you know, that it, I suppose mirrors your clients and, and, and all the biggest, you know, management consultancies as well. And yeah. that, you know, you do, that does add another dimension to your, your career development for, for sure. And I just wish more recruitment company leaders saw that, uh, like were more ambitious actually, <laughs> and realized that they could, they could do that. I, I once went to visit, um, an executive search firm in my hometown in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I was, I was there and I thought, you know, I'm going to go around and visit while I'm at home. Uh, I don't have any clients here. I'm going to go and, and see some people. And I went and spoke to this guy who is the, you know, the CEO of what he, they told me they were the second largest executive search firm in Halifax. They had maybe 18 people or something. It's a small, small town. And, uh, and I said, fantastic. So what are your strategic plans for growth? And he was like, well, you know, we're pretty much saturated the market. There's not much more we can do. Um, we're, di- we're, we're constrained by, you know, the, the, the market in the Atlantic Canada region is just not, you know, we're, we're getting as much as we can get. Mm. And I was like, that blew me away. Cause I, I'm, you know, used to the UK where companies are super ambitious and they want to grow and expand and, you know, uh, and I was like, but what stops you opening a New York office or even a London office or, you know, and that creates a whole new level of potential mm. and also career, tr- career, career development for the, for your team. Mm. And the, he just looked at me like blankly. And I was like, you know, this is not going to become a client. I can, <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. It's a challenge. Uh, like you, uh, I think you asked earlier, like what are the management, what are the financial metrics mm. you look at? And I think that growing internationally, expanding internationally costs money. And therefore, you do have to have a medium to long-term view on it. Um, And, you know, I think if you are obsessively focused on the bottom line year on year, um, that can act as a deterrent to expanding internationally because, you know, you have to look at these things like any business. If you're going to open an office overseas, you have to spend some money, you have to find the right people, and there's a lead time to making money. So, I think you have to have a medium to long-term view. Although it's also funny, like I think you know a lot of recruitment businesses or recruitment business owners I talk to do have international ambitions. But you know there is a very big focus in the recruitment world for some reason on exit. You know you talk to anyone in recruitment, and you know the, the conversation very quickly turns to exit. You know a lot of people have their eye on that, and so it's interesting to me that you know if you do have your eye on that, you know international expansion should go hand in hand because actually if exit is what you're interested in and i think there's probably too big a focus on exits in the recruitment sector um but if that is what you're interested in then an international footprint is going to be um is only going to be helpful for that so yeah like i agree i i I think if and also it depends on your clients we've effectively followed our clients across the globe so when um, our law firms are in france and germany and the middle east and china it just makes sense to follow them there 
Yeah, great, great point. That was um, I, I've got a book on the on the shelf there by David Ogilvy, who launched Ogilvy Mather uh, Advertising Agency, um, and that was his b- kind of blueprint for expansion. Is they were winning, you know, accounts with large firms, and then those firm they just moved where their clients were, basically. So that that does make sense. Jonathan, um, this has been spectacular. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. If people want to follow up and learn more about SSQ and and what you guys are doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so, I mean, the website or find me on LinkedIn, um, shoot me an email, send me a message. Either of those two are, are probably the easiest things to do. And thank, and thank, you, for ha- thank you for having me on. This is my first podcast. So... Uh, you um, you handled me gently. I appreciate that. <laughs> you did an amazing job, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, so yes, let's do it again sometime. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the resilient recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you, or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com or feel free to nominate yourself. And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Like once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.